1: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology are the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs.
3: No, we don't do. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 38. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. And today, we're starting a new series where we're examining the history of pseudo-archaeology. Today, we'll be discussing hyperdiffusionism and where it came from and how it's developed into the theory that it is today. Get ready to think critically. Honey meaty blokes,
2: you will see, are a staple of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do
3: dinosaurs. Everyone, welcome to the show. Hey, Ken, how's the weather?
2: Well,
0: it is beautiful, sunny, it's starting to be like like almost summer here in southern New England, so that's a, that's a good thing. No more frost, no more snow.
3: You know, actually, it's funny you mentioned summer, because it's been like dark as fuck here, but um, I have been told that the summers in Virginia are hellish, and I know that they are because I've worked in them. Right, so I'm kind yeah. of enjoying the fact that it's still cold here yeah. for right now, but anyway.
0: Yeah, we had we had a stretch of around 10 days where nobody saw the sun, whereas us old guys started reminiscing about that the sky being blue at one time, and the kids didn't believe us, but you know. I was going to say, what is this blue you speak yeah. of? What, what?
3: I've been told that there's something behind the clouds, but I don't believe anyone anymore.
0: It was like uh, Seattle, but without really good coffee for two days.
3: Okay, so today, Ken, I wanted to launch a new series, and I thought this would be the right show to do this. I thought it would be interesting if we talked about the history of Pseudo archaeology, pseudoscience ish, and alt history.
2: Yeah.
3: And what I mean when I say talking about the history of it is looking at how it developed and looking at some of the big names who helped sure. push it along. Yeah. Um, and
0: that's, and that, that kind of, when you started talking about that, that that, that brought to mind the following. And I'm, it's, it's going to be all over the place a little bit, but, and it also brings in something that's happening virtually right now. In the, the uh, media circus involving archaeology, and I think are there's. You, are you there's saying you're going to
3: have a disjointed rant? Because we never have those on this show.
0: That's that's my middle name, Sarah. It's Kenny. Just disjointed rant fader. What the um, hell of a name um, is. <laughs> hey, listen, whatever works. The initials. <laughs> I have them on a I have a card. It's on my business card. It's, it's I'm so making you a business yeah. card that says that. <laughs> you to. You gotta. So here's right. what I thought of when you started talking about this. And right. I'll start even before the beginning and then I'll work my way into it. Okay. Which is you, you Sarah are a a, a trained archaeologist, a rational person, a scientist as am I. I and you and right. I, well you and I probably have this what for some people is a misconception that experience, um training and uh uh Experience and training are meaningful, are good things when we're talking about any scientific enterprise. That it's sure. good to know something, it's good to have um, training in that thing, it's good to have experience in that thing, and that seems that's kind of that seems sort of self-evident that. If you want to get your car fixed, you go someplace where people have experience at fixing cars, have training in fixing cars, and can work on your car. And if you have a medical issue and there's something bothering you, maybe you're getting blinding headaches or you can't sleep, you you go to someone, you want to go to somebody who's got experience and training and a background in that expertise in that field. But you know, and this really is going to lead to what we're talking about um, for the rest of the show, is that there, there's a, a a conceit on the part of a lot of people that we have it exactly wrong, that in fact, experience, training, and expertise is a straitjacket, that we are so locked in to what we've been taught and what we've been inculcated with, and it's it's and that that we can't think outside of the box. Um, uh, Cremo and Thompson, uh, these authors who wrote this book, Forbidden Archaeology, which effectively is like Hindu creationism, that the world is 300 billion years old and human beings have been around for the entire time, and uh, very, very strange book. They use the phrase uh, knowledge filter So they accuse people like you and me and other people who listen to this podcast and Jeb and and skeptics, scientific archeologists, we have a filter and we don't allow anything that doesn't match or fit our preconceived notions um, about the past, that anything that doesn't fit through that filter, we we discard it, we throw it away. And as a result, in this mindset, you and me are incapable Of changing our minds, of of recognizing new and interesting data when it's out there, and so in fact, in this kind of bizarro, topsy turvy world, having experience in archaeology, having expertise in archaeology, having training in archaeology is a bad thing, and that in fact, it's much better if you have no background in it whatsoever, because you're much more open to new thoughts and new ideas. And this has led to, I guess you would call it a meme? And here's, the story is, because we are so restricted, so close-minded, so petrified in our thinking, that what's really cool is that somebody comes along who is not not a pointy-headed intellectual like us, not an ivory tower, not a resident of the ivory ivory tower, and they- I got elevated. Yeah, there you go. And they, these 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 complete innocents, come along at what, you know, the emperor's got no clothes. They come up with amazing new discoveries and, and, and people applaud that and think, isn't that cool? Isn't that payback to those smart-ass PhDs, those smart-ass scientists, those smart-ass archaeologists? And I'm coming back around to archaeology, but let me digress a little bit. This happens in and, so, and every science, and it happens in medical science as well. And I remember remember a few years ago, there was a movie called Lorenzo's Oil. Yes. It's a perfect example of this meme. So here, these, and this is a true story, it's a very sad story, and this is not in any way um, me trying to, to diss the parents of this child who was born, perfectly normal for the f- first five years of his life, and then started, you know... Acting strangely, having headaches, he couldn't walk, and they went from doctor to doctor to doctor. In this, kind of, this is the the um, the kind of cliche version of the story. Went from doctor to doctor to doctor. People said, "Oh, it's just it's just all in his head. Uh, maybe he was exposed to some tropical virus." Until a doctor said, "No, he's got this genetic condition that prevents his body from adequately uh, metabolizing fats, and it's it's there's no cure." There's, it's, there's no good end here. He's going to die in a couple of years. The parents, not medical, no training in medicine, not doctors, not scientists, decided they were going to, by the force of their love, they were going to cure their son. And in the movie, they, they you know, experiment. They read every medical journal, even though they have no background in medicine. They come up with this mixture of, of various oils that you can buy off the you know, off the shelf at the supermarket. They started feeding
3: these oils to their kid and Eureka! All those scientists who said he was gonna okay. die. Oh, Wait, I, I have a question. Yeah. Okay, so he can't process fats, right? Something that's apparently, or it doesn't do, cannot process
0: these fats in the way that regular people can, people who don't have the genetic S- defects.
3: So how does feeding him a bunch of oils, which are basically fats, how does that solve the problem?
0: You know, I, I, I play a doctor on TV, but I'm not actually a doctor. So I'm not exactly sure. Oh, man, but, this is going to bug me now, but go ahead. But you will know, well, look it up. It, the story then is that, that r- miraculously this kid gets better. He doesn't die. They've saved their son. They start sharing this with other people. And it's this wonderful meme the doctors, all these guys with degrees from Ivy League institutions—they think they're smarter than everybody else. They think they know what they're doing, but it's a a, a a couple trying to save their kid are actually able to cure him. The only problem is a lot of that story um, is exaggeration and, in fact, not true. Right. In fact, this poor little boy Lorenzo—they call it Lorenzo's oil—is the name of their kid. It ends up that this little kid, the pro- the disease progressed. He didn't mm. get better, he just didn't die. In fact, the doctor said, he was about five years old, the doctor said, usually this resolves itself in a couple of years, he's gonna die. He lived to be 30, Sarah. So he far outlived the, what the doctors predicted. However, for the vast majority of those 30 years, he was blind,
2: oh, he, no. was,
0: he was in a wheelchair, and from what I could tell, although the parents disputed this, he was in a, a, a prolonged vegetative state. So while he was physically alive, it was even his father, I believe, has in recent years, kid died several years ago, said, you know, I'm not sure we did the right thing. If if the oil kept him alive, he didn't have much of a, a quality, much quality of life. Um and now, and the thing is, again, contrary to the meme, when doctors saw that he wasn't dying, they did a number of, of tests on this. What they found out was it does that this Lorenzo's oil. Does nothing whatsoever for kids. Once they start to manifest their symptoms, they get the disease and they die. They have no idea why this kid Lorenzo lived to be thirty, but they're not even convinced that it was the oil. That it was one of those situations in which, yeah, sometimes doctors think they know when somebody's end is going to come, and that for whatever reason the person continues to live. That and in re-examining this Lorenzo's oil, they ended up. Um, finding that if you if you do the genetic test and your kid before your kid it's usually it's always boys we start this before they start to manifest the it's it's the the genetic defect is on the x chromosome but it does not affect girls um anyway the um, broken chromosome y'all have yeah and so i guess what happens is that they've done they've done a number of of studies The, the the number of people with this disease is very small and when um Half of the kids, half of the little boys, they gave the oil to um, before they manifested the symptoms. They say genetically, okay, this kid's got it. Um, and half of them actually do get better, and they don't know exactly why. And Half of them, the disease just progresses, and they, they go downhill rapidly, and they die. So The thing is, it's a really interesting story, but it doesn't really fit the meme of evil scientists, bad scientists... Um, close-minded scientists, and it's wow! Some some guy working in his kitchen solves this this horrible disease. Okay. Now the meme is being repeated now, and okay. obviously not nearly as horrible a way. If you've been watching the various news accounts online, the, here's how the meme goes now: 15-year-old high school student. Rewrites Maya, oh. rewrites the story of the Maya. And I the was wondering
3: that, where you were going with this. So that, yeah,
0: and here's the deal. So this, so this kid, I'm sure he's a really bright kid, wonderful kid, is doing like a science project, and he's really interested in the Maya, and he starts, you know, mapping out the Maya sites, and now he's got no background in archaeology. Obviously, he's a high school kid, and suddenly, again, following the meme, this little kid working on his you know, his little laptop in his little house has a eureka moment that trained scientists could never have because they're so close-minded, sees that the locations of Maya cities match what this kid is calling Maya constellations. So so in other words, we can explain the location of Maya cities on the basis of these constellations. And not only that, but, but next, that's number one. Number two, because he can't because he knows what these constellations look like he can predict the location of as yet undiscovered maya cities and number 3 it seems that he can apply the same technique to to up to sites in like mesopotamia and the indus valley and so oh my god here is this 15 year old kid out of nowhere, because he's not restricted, because he's he's not straight-jacketed by training, he sees a pattern that nobody else can see, that all over the world ancient civilizations built their cities to match the constellations in the sky. The only problem with that mean is, meme is, as well-meaning as this kid is, Mayanists have come out and to a person have said, sorry, this is bullshit. Because effectively, <laughs> (laughs) Because effectively, well, yeah, there are so many Maya sites that if you cherry pick the right ones, yeah, they can look like constellations or they can look like the locations of subway stops in Manhattan or they can look like the locations of Dunkin' Donuts in your city. You can make it look like anything because there are so many of them. And then they said, well, by the way, this place where the kids said. There's gotta be a Maya site there because it fits my pattern. And then they went and looked on like Google Earth and found something strange in the jungle. Oh, oh my God, God. They able- and what the- now what the Mayanists have said, well, actually that's a recently cleared field and it's <laughs> not a Maya site at all. Um, and you know, the fact that the-, the notion that, well, wait a minute, and we can all- that- so that all these other civilizations did exactly the same thing. It didn't smell right to me from the very beginning. And in fact, the Mayanists have come out and say, look, Cute kid, really interesting that he's, you know, great that he's interested in this, but this discovery that he made, this meme that all these trained archaeologists can't see what a 15 year old working in his, you know, his parents' basement was able to find, that meme turns out, in fact, not to apply. And so, so what we're at, what we now where we're going back to is. In so many cases the things that we're going that we have already talked about on this pro on this podcast and the, the, the new theme that you've got looking at the history of pseudo archaeology, fringe archaeology, alternative archaeology it's that in spades. it's Barry fell well okay he's not a you know why he could discover stuff that, that us trained archaeologists couldn't because he wasn't polluted by what we know. He's a marine biologist. How about um, Eric von Doniken? How could he find all this stuff? that we've never seen, that we've never accepted. Well, because he, again, his mind is not warped by training, experience, right? Or, or, um, yeah, training or experience or expertise. What his background is, he was like an assistant hotel manager. And how about Giorgio Tsoukalos? Look at this stuff, look at this stuff. He can see this. And you and I, Sarah, and the other, the rest of, the rest of the trained archaeological community, we miss this. We're we're too blind to this. Why? Because Giorgio's background is what was sports, sports marketing, or something. It was so, a sports announcer. Yeah, something like that. And Graham Hancock. What's his background? Well, he was a journalist. The the thing is, we go on and on and on. We list every one of these, and it's the same idea. It's that it's that we, because we have training, because we are we are steeped in um in. Archaeological training and experience, because that's that's where we come from. That we are we are limited. There's a box around our brains, and we can't see outside of that box. And it takes somebody without any of those skills to see the truth. And it's it really is a kind of a bizarro, strange world in which we are that people consider us to be at a disadvantage
3: because we know something. How weird is that, Sarah? I've never really understood that phenomenon myself, but like you said, I've gone through college and I've been trained. And even when I was young, I understood that not having, you can't do something unless you know at least a little bit about it, which is the the fatal flaw of this whole argument um, from their side, this whole, you know, not being a trained archaeologist makes you a better archaeologist because even the ones who are doing the most bizarre archaeology are still pantomiming what they think is archaeology. So they're still at some level trying to reproduce academic procedures, um, which I I mean, I see that as kind of a little hypocritical, maybe. Uh, well, just, it's just because like, I mean, yeah, they're like, oh, I'm not, not a trained archaeologist. And it's like, yeah, but you think you're doing archaeology. So where did you learn to do this thing that you think you're doing? You're not doing it right, but right. you think you are. Yeah. So where they, did you learn that?
0: They inhabit an alternative universe of, <laughs> OK, we know they go out and dig holes we're going to go out and dig
3: holes. Right, right. we're not going to be restricted in our interpretation. It's it's, (laughs) it's cult science is what it is. It's cult science. Right, yeah. I mean, that's literally what it is.
0: They'll send samples out for radiocarbon dating, but because they have no experience with that, they don't know that, you know what? Stratigraphy is really important and association is really important. And you can date a piece of charcoal. That's the easy part. The hard part is making sure that it's associated with the site that you really want to date. You don't want to date the charcoal. I don't give a shit how old charcoal is. I want to know when was the site occupied. And therefore, when I date the charcoal, I want to make damn sure that that charcoal is the same age of the site.
3: Well, yeah, exactly.
0: Without any experience in doing that with just kind of of, um, a superficial understanding of, oh, archeologists, they dig up charcoal, they send it to a lab and pay them, and a number comes back yeah. without understanding how, how to interpret that number and how confident you should be in that number. Sure, you can decide that, you know what, America's Stone Age, Mystery Hill is way too old to be a colonial site because at some point, somebody found a piece of charcoal there, they got a radiocarbon date, but there's no, again, no training, no experience in keeping stratigraphic profiles right. intact and, right. uh, and preventing contamination so that ultimately, you're right, they pantomime the process But again, you and I would look at that date and say, well, it doesn't really match our expectation, so we better look at it a little more carefully. They consider that to be our denial of anything that fits outside of that box. We're in where, you know, they're not looking at that at all. They are completely credulous about it.
3: Yeah. Okay. well, we're going to go to break real quick. And when we get back, uh, we are going to have a really brief history lesson and then probably rant some more.
0: There you go.
3: And we're back Ken, Have you calmed down some? Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just you know what what happens, Sarah, is that I get up in the morning and I've got my you know my Yahoo page and I've got the, the science feeds. So it's all this cool science stuff.
3: I love Which, that you still use Yahoo. <laughs> I do. I love
0: the Yahoo. and I guess, well, I'm, you know, I don't do the Facebooks, so I've got my Yahoo feed. And, but if I got all this science, I got Scientific American and a bunch of other stuff. And the, you, know, you, you know you open up and the first thing you see is high school student um, is going to cause the mayanist to rewrite history and you go oh shit and I I'm immediately I'm skeptical but I said okay let me take a look at this and I'm reading it and saying did any of the people writing this stuff have any background in science at all because there's complete you know it's the, it's this embrace it's it's this wonderful fairy story. Of the, the little guy in his garage builds the perpetual motion machine, and the scientists all look, oh, you know, the the, the 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 again the
3: stiff-necked. Oh, you mean um, you haven't built your perpetual motion machine yet? Um,
0: I'm, working off
3: the I'm working on it. I'm working so on it. But listen, no, I'm listen.
0: The, but my time machine has been taking up all of my energy, so uh, the, the perpetual motion machine. That ain't working yet for me, but I'm wor- I'm working on it. But yeah, I mean, it's just it it's it it it's, ang- it it it's disconcerting, it's enervating, it's disappointing that even in ostensibly, you know, science based news, we're not talking about ancient aliens, we're not talking about you know really fringe stuff, but even there, there's a lack of. Of, of kind of reflection about, well, what does this mean? Should we not talk to people who are actual experts in the field before we go off half-cocked and say, oh, my God, this is going to change everything?
3: Well, I think some of this actually, I think going over the history of this whole concept that we call currently pseudo-archaeology will kind of shed some light on why people think that way. Um, right. Mainly because... Uh, one of the things to keep in mind as we're going over or the the audience to keep in mind as we're going over all of this is at some point archaeology and history and that kind of stuff wasn't really a field it was a thing that rich people and <laughs> priests and people who had nothing else to do did um, Right. and so it's really interesting. So we're gonna focus mostly um, on alternative history. And once we get through that, I wanna talk about um, the ancient aliens people and hyperdiffusionism through aliens. Sure. But, but yeah, you're,
0: uh, yeah, you're okay. absolutely right. Absolutely right, Sarah, that, that for a very long time, the, the archeology span didn't become professionalized until the 20th century. So you got a lot of guys out there saying, you know what, I'm gonna dig shit up. And they did. Giovanni Battista Belzoni, who is like the first Egyptologist, his job before that, he was a circus strong man. Yep. And went to Egypt and said, yeah, I'm gonna dig a bunch of stuff up. And the perception was that's what archeology span is. You go, you dig a bunch of stuff up and then you bring it home to a museum.
3: I think my and- favorite Giovanni story though, isn't even a him digging things. I guess it's, ah, oh, it's terrifying to think of today, but it's kind of comical for the era. He was investigating, quote-unquote, a uh, mummy tomb uh, and wasn't paying attention to where he was stepping and apparently fell through a floor into a mummy's crypt. Oh, my God. And in a moment of, I guess, panic, he's rolling around and thrashing and just decimating this mummy that he landed on because yeah. he couldn't get out of the, the tomb fast enough, yeah. um, which I'm sure is very disconcerting. <laughs> Yeah, I think it, it. You know, somewhere his his. Uh, I have it here
0: somewhere. His memoirs, and he actually talks about at one point climbing up a hill that was it was nothing but dead bodies. It was mummies, and the heads would fall would would break off. The bodies and roll back down the hill as he's walking through them but he was he didn't want to bring mummies back home no europe. they weren't
3: they weren't into mummies yet
0: it was it was you know gold and lapis lazuli and these beautiful artifacts that's what was going to earn him some money but as you know people back in europe they thought
3: well that's an archaeologist that's what archaeologists yeah do. well and a lot of people modern day still think that i call it an it artifact is. Porn. They think that's all it is. Is just the the fetishizing of the object itself. Yes. But the, it's a big the,
0: Easter egg hunt that we do. That's all exactly. it is. It's an Easter egg hunt. Absolutely. But this whole
3: interest in history and where we came from, we being the human species and all that. I mean, that's that's an age old question. Um, sure. And this whole concept of where did culture start and where did culture come from, which is a major focus of most archaeology and anthropology. Uh, not where did the culture come from, but what is the culture of the people that I'm looking at? Um, but so have we have we discussed the term hyperdiffusionism in I detail we yet?
0: Probably have danced around it, but why don't you provide like a real a real a, 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 a definition that everybody can kind of get their their hands their minds around.
3: Okay, so now I now I'm on the hot seat. So
0: notice how I did that, Sarah. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah, you sidestepped that
0: quite well. I tell you what, tell you what, before you do that, let's back up. The the concept of diffusionism is the whole idea that ideas do travel and there's nothing wrong with this. I mean this happened ideas travel travel from people to people. So that people in, in One River Valley may develop a particular agricultural technique or they may develop a, t- a metallurgical technique, or a ceramic, or whatever, and that because of trade, because of contact, war, whatever, people in adjacent valleys see this and go, you know, we'd like to do that too. And so they borrow those ideas, and ideas do spread across, yes. you know, like ripples across a pond. When, here, in North East, here in Connecticut, the oldest ceramics that we find here, probably less than around 3,000 years old. And we don't see any developmental sequence, we just see, but bam, this, this ceramic type called Vinette 1 shows up in Connecticut 3,000 years ago. And when we look to the west and the south, we see the same kind of ceramics, only it's a little bit older. And so we know, you know what, they didn't develop, they didn't invent ceramic technology in Connecticut. It diffused, it moved in from the west and the south.
3: And that's, that's an diff- excellent example
0: yeah and corn corn agriculture that oh, yeah. was developed in mesoamerica we know um teosinte is the wild ancestor of corn it doesn't grow in north america teosinte does say teosinte was domesticated by people and it spread from there and we find that's five or six or seven even eight thousand years ago south of the border in in mexico um, in Mesoamerica, and then we start seeing it show up in the American Southwest around 4,000 years ago, and the American Southeast around uh, 3,000 or 3,500 years ago. So it's pretty, and, and no, again, no developmental sequences. It, we see that, that stuff, bam, it shows up. It diffused from the South. That happens.
3: Now, diffusionism is taking the concept of diffusionism to, I want to say, the crazy level. Uh, which I don't think is entirely fair, but that's how I feel about it. Hyperdiffusionism is almost always used by the fringe. And it's (coughs) always used in the context of there was a great civilization X and said civilization X created all culture, all art, all technology, all everything. And then those people went out and taught that culture to everyone else in the world. Yeah, you got it. That's hyperdiffusionism. Yeah. And that falls squarely into the realm of the fringe. And that is kind of what we're going to be talking about today and maybe a little bit in another show later right. on. Um, because but, the concept of hyperdiffusionism has actually been around since bef- since like the early eighteen hundreds, if right, not yeah. a little bit earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um originally yeah, but- it was thought that because there's always there're always for hyperdiffusionism to work you have to have a mother culture basically you have to have a culture that has all this stuff and originally because of you know wow. religion was so big in society you know back in the day they always thought that it was the garden of eden or um the cradle of humanity which floated around depending on who was talking about it it's been everywhere from like right. Bolivia to what Argentina I think so yeah, Argentina. So the the nobody really ever can decide where this mother culture starts, but it starts and then it starts to spread. And it for a long time, it was actually an accepted theory because, you know, in the early 1800s, we didn't have we didn't have science like we have today. Um, so there wasn't any there wasn't a lot of checks and balances here and also we didn't have as much information as we have today we have a lot of information yeah. now because we've had the you know the academic field of history the academic field of archaeology the academic field of anthropology and all of those other related fields we've had those for right. so long now a lot of people don't even understand what it would be like to not have these developed fields of science yeah. I mean, this this the
0: notion of kind of hyper diffusionism um, you're right. It was not always on the fringe. The British school right. of diffusionism that was that was like an actual paradigm uh, that was a, 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 a kind of a truth held by a lot of British anthropologists. Yeah, that, you, know, you know what? The, as, essentially, to look at it from even the other perspective, uh, Sarah, it's basically the assumption is that most human groups, most people, most cultures, are dull and uninventive and would never progress and it took a genius culture right. some some culture that had for whatever reason this ability to progress it happened there the mother culture as you said and everything spread out from there and essentially the, the the british school their their argument they didn't they took it for granted that there was a mother culture they didn't know where it was and that what they what they sometimes also tried to do is discern well what made them why were they the mother culture and the school of environmental determinism was that in one part of the world, the environment was so salubrious, so uh-huh. powerful, so rich that those people were able to progress to to advance tremendously, and they then spread this their their cultural um, advances to the rest of the world. But there also were, I mean, effectively, some of these guys were racists who said, "Yeah, well, of course, the the native people of the new world, they're not bright enough to figure out agriculture or metallurgy or to build monumental architectural works by themselves, so they must have been inspired from somewhere else. Um, And the the dark-skinned people of Africa, the people of Asia. So therefore, and uh, for a lot of the, the, the folks in the British school, it was Egypt. Egypt was the source, the core, the mother culture. And they couldn't deny that, and that's ancient. And, man, they were really advanced, so they were presented as the mother culture of course, right. all that fell apart when they started dating the stuff in mesopotamia and found out oops that's older than egypt so egypt can't be the mother culture well maybe it's mesopotamia and that's where the garden of eden was so that makes sense but th- it was pretty explicit even among these guys when they found writing when they found mathematics when they found sophisticated calendars when they found monumental architectural uh works when they found sophisticated agricultural Um, techniques when they found metallurgy well that's all advanced stuff it must have come from somewhere other than the new world other than mexico other than peru
3: and it was very easy to kind of try to pin that on mesopotamia and egypt because at the time there was far more archaeology because remember the 1800s is uh mid 1800s is about where archaeology starts to coalesce and starts to kind of sort of start resembling a, a scientific uh, study right yeah um now there were not that's not saying there weren't things that we would recognize as archaeology occurring before this point I believe there was one uh there was actually a woman who was doing uh, archaeological digs in the 17 late 1700s so mm. you know this this goes back pretty far
0: yeah and you got Thomas Jefferson is excavating mounds on his property um back in the, in the, the 18th century as well yeah and, right, you- right 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 so it happened. It, it, did, it did occur that people with with no training, but also also with few, well, if any, preconceptions. It's,
3: see, said, it's unfair to say that, though, because there there was no one to train you. There was no way I'm, to
0: be trained. Yeah, no. I, I, that was not. I was not um, criticizing those folks. I'm saying they, there were people who had no training, but also didn't go out there with preconceptions about what they would find, but went out there and said, you know what? And the interesting thing was these were some of the first people who recognized maybe we can answer questions by digging in the dirt. Right. Maybe we can answer questions, even though these people are long gone and left no written record, the physical record can inform us about their lives. And that's cool. That's real archaeology. If gonzoni wasn't doing real archaeology, he was, you know, he was... Looking for artifacts that could would make him rich. By right, 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 right. On right. The, the antiquities market.
3: Well, and I mean, if you want to really go back to the the very first of it, I mean, the first recorded, quote unquote, archaeological excavation that we are aware of actually happened in ancient Egypt, and it occurred around the <coughs> Um I forget the guy's name, and I probably wouldn't be able to pronounce it anyway, but— <laughs> He was an advisor to the pharaoh at the time, and they the, the Sphinx had been there long enough that people had forgotten who built it, so he sent his little advisor out with a bunch of workers, and they unburied the Sphinx, and then, I, I don't know, they found out whatever they needed to find out, and the reason we know this occurred is because the guy who led the expedition chiseled out his name in a stone plaque and reburied it when they <laughs> reburied the Sphinx. Yeah. So we've been interested as a as a species in digging things up and trying to figure out what they are for a very long time. Right. You know, but it didn't you're, start you're, it to hmm? Yeah.
0: I mean you're seeing your the story of Egypt this a very something similar happened in Mesopotamia as well where this Mesopotamian the, the head of a of a city state, his name was Nibonidas, his army discovered the ruins of the ancient city of Larsa and they dug it up. They yeah. were interested in what they could find there, and there's there actually is a cuneiform tablet somewhere that's been translated. It talks about it was okay, you know right. a place built by the gods. It was long covered up, but now it's been revealed, and we are and it's amazing. And that's you're looking at something that's uh, 3,000, three thousand thirty five hundred years ago. It's a very long time ago. So that's right. very very cool.
3: Yeah. Okay. We're gonna go to break real quick, and when we get back, I want to talk about Ignatius Donnelly absolutely
2: women in archaeology is a show about archaeology by the women of archaeology an alternating panel of women archaeologists discuss the issues in archaeology that impact professionals and the public every day check out women in archaeology for a different perspective on the past today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash wia now let's get back to the show
3: And we're back. And I want to talk about Ignatius Donnelly because Ignatius Donnelly was probably one of the first true hyper-diffusionists. Um, at least the first one we have on record that I can find.
0: Well, he well you know, I don't know if he gets primacy there, but he certainly was a badass diffusionist. And I mean <laughs> I mean, but you make a really good it's a point that we have made kind of tangentially before that. With hyperdiffusionism, there are there are lots of different varieties. There are the ones that simply say, well, people are stupid, so they must have gotten an idea from somewhere else. And very often they're racist and very often they're kind of silly. But at least some hyperdiffusionists point to a real place and say, well, it all started in Egypt. It all started in Mesopotamia. Right. But with Ignatius Donnelly and then later on with Eric Von Daniken and Giorgio Tsoukalos and all the ancient astronauts and ancient aliens guys, those guys are hyperdiffusionists and where you know where we're in the past, the hyperdiffusion hyperdiffusion is pointed to Egypt and said it all came from there. And some of them po- pointed to Mesopotamia and said it all came from there. Donnelly pointed to an, a blank spot on a map in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and said, "Oh no, it all started there." And Vannicat and sukalos point their finger, not their middle finger, their pointer finger up to the heavens, up to the sky, and say, "No, it all came from there."
3: Now we'll so- get. We'll get to the ancient aliens people in another show, but sure. this one oh, we're yeah. just this this time I just want to focus on people um who are making claims about hyperdiffusionism here on earth. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, I just want to keep it a little closer to home but, this
0: time. But that's that's fine, but it's all for context. It's all part it of is. the it same fabric. It's woven and- from the same cloth.
3: And I'm sure that our, our listeners have probably heard us talk about Ignatius Donnelly before. Um, in 1882, yeah, Atlantis, right? yeah, in 1882, Donnelly published uh, Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, which, as far as we can tell, is the launching point for all of the weird Atlantis is real crap. Because um, up to this point, the only written mentions of Atlantis is in Plato's uh, Timaeus and Creates,
0: it's it's tibius and critius. Thank you.
2: Yeah, you right. bet.
3: And, uh, <laughs> and neither of them really spend a whole lot of time talking about it. And also the Atlanteans were the bad guys. So where this mm-hmm. whole concept of like erudite beings coming down and being nice to everybody, that I think all came out of Donnelly. Donnelly, however, is the first person to say that, yes, Atlantis was real. It was a real place. And it is where... All of these really, really smart people, this genius mother culture lived. And when Atlantis was destroyed, because he believes that it did happen, all of the survivors from Atlantis went out into the world and took all the culture with them. And that's how, that's why we have these advanced civilizations at these ancient points in history is because they all got influenced by the great Atlanteans,
0: right? And it's it. But again, it, exactly as we've been, s- been talking about, the fundamental theme, the fundamental assumption is, uh, the people of the world needed what effectively was a peace corps to right. bring them up from their their benighted uh, ignorance and poverty and primitiveness, and they needed a mother culture, a superior culture that had worked it all out, metallurgy and 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 the the architecture and engineering and math and all that stuff, they would already worked it out. And they're the ones who introduced it or shared it with the rest of the world.
3: And to keep with another theme that we've been on about for several episodes now, actually, Donnelly believed that uh, Atlantis was the original home of the Aryan race, and, and the Aryan race were described as being red-haired, blue-eyed, and he believed that the pure blood descendants of these Aryan race would be found in Ireland, because that's where redheads occur naturally, apparently. <laughs> oh, there
0: you go.
3: Um, so it is in keeping with that whole, I, I have a hard time calling it racism at this point in history, just because it was like everybody was like this, but it was racism. So, you know. It is yeah. what it is. It's not it's a, racism how we recognize it today, but it was racism.
0: <laughs> it's like the ancient aliens meme. I'm not saying it was racism, but, <laughs> but it was racism. racism. <laughs> well, but 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 fundamentally, that's the, the thing that the hyperdiffusionists are kind of slippery about it because depending on which hyperdiffusionists you talk to, it's you know it's it's the the racism is directed at different people. Right. So that you know, you on the one hand you have folks who say mm-hmm. no, this African civilization, Egypt, they're the source of everything, and they are after all. Africans for God's sake, and they're not white people. But then you have people reacting to that going, no, 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 the Egyptians they learned it from these red-haired guys who are living on the lost continent well, and, of Atlantis.
3: And sometimes you'll see the the Egyptian culture the Egyptian civilization being considered the mother culture, but the rulers of said mother culture weren't actually africans you'll see that sometimes and i think we'll actually hit on that <laughs> in some of the names we're gonna go over um right. somebody i do want to mention that before we move on is um william fairfield warren who in 1885 threw a ratchet into this now he still believed in the aryan race but he believed that the mother culture actually came out of the garden of eden which was located underneath all of the ice in the north pole uh, he also believed that that's where Atlantis was. You'll see Atlantis pop up in a lot of these. Oh, my uh, God, yeah, yeah. But he believed that Atlantis was also the Garden of Eden, was also Mount Meru, which was also Avalon, which was also any other lost civilization that was supposed to be awesome, was and is, well, I mean, if he was still alive, he would argue that it is still under all of the ice in the North Pole, which if we keep up with global warming, we'll find out soon enough. So oh,
0: yes. But, <laughs> but that's interesting that he says the North Pole but uh, the, the, the folks who support the pole shift um, hypothesis, they've got Atlantis under the South Pole. Right. They're hedging their bets, Sarah, wherever yeah. you look. This is gonna, true. I, I, I do that actually in the Fraud's book because I have a map with, with little dots showing yes. where a series of authors have claimed Atlantis to be. And I live in this little piddly ass little town up in northwestern Connecticut, little Riverton population of about 300 people. This may be the only place on earth where somebody hasn't said, I think that's where Atlantis was. So you, we've you avoided jest. that.
3: Yeah, you just, no, but later on, we talk about a guy who seems to think Atlantis was in California.
0: Well, well that makes sense. Um, but ultimately, understand that, you know, here's so Ignatius Donnelly. And here again, with the whole Atlantis thing, act, you know, after Tima- Timaeus and Critias, most Greek scholars said, nah, there's nothing to it. Uh, there right. always was an undercurrent of people who read that those dialogues and said, yeah, there must be something to this. Right. It's Donnelly who really makes, it, who, who succeeds in making it very popular. He was at the right time, at the right place. People were looking for the mother culture. And here he, had, here was a ready-made example of that. And, and Donnelly, in the antediluvian world, in that book, he goes through a series of great leaps forward in antiquity, um, and every one of them he ascribes to Atlantis. So right. pyramids, oh, that was Atlantis. Agriculture, that was Atlantis. The development of the arch, that was Atlantis. And w- essentially what Donnelly does is If you are this hyperdiffusionist and if you truly believe that human beings are kind of dull and uninventive and that all great ideas start in one place, then when you look at a map of the ancient world and see pyramids in Mexico and pyramids in Egypt and earth mounds that look like pyramids in North America, you, you the only conclusion you can draw is, well, since they're all are exactly the same, they must have this a source, a single common source. Right. We don't have that, it must be this lost continent. And he did the same thing with agriculture, he did the same thing with metallurgy, he did the same thing with the arch, where he finds things in different parts of the world and says, wow, these are really similar, they couldn't have developed on their own. People are not inventive enough to do that. They must have diffused from somewhere, and you know the place that he decided they diffused from was a mythical lost continent.
3: Well, and you can forgive in these people's in Donnelly and and uh, Donnelly and Warren's defense, you can forgive it a little bit because we're talking about the mid to late eighteen hundreds again. The field itself is just starting to become a thing. We don't have a lot of information. I don't, they don't have dating methods. I don't I don't even, they've got stratigraphy at this point, but I don't think they really have much of anything else. And they <laughs> yeah. certainly don't have any of the chemical and, and uh, scientific ones that we use today. So you know you can kind of forgive this concept of like oh hey it must have all happened at once and it must have all happened during you know one great migration or several migrations because we were kind of guessing at this point anyway. Yeah, you know um, what,
0: Sarah, you could you can be forgiving. I'm not going to be forgiving. You, Here, you don't have to be.
3: I just want people to understand that there's some context to this. It's not just like a oh, bunch of dumbasses, you know. Well,
0: but but you know you know as as they said in in um, what was that movie uh, Forrest Gump. Stupid is as stupid does.
3: Well, Donnelly did have a bit of criticism when he published his book, though. He he and Warren. It
0: It is true that there was no radiocarbon dating. It's true that we don't, certainly, when he was writing in the late 19th century, we we didn't know as much about the ancient cultures of Egypt and Mesopotamia and of the Indus Valley and the the Yellow River in China and of the New World and North and South America. But Donnelly Mm -hmm. knew goddamn well what crops were planted by the indigenous people in those areas and knew that they, they've they been doing it for a long time. And he knew damn well that the, the Aztecs weren't growing wheat, they were growing corn. And the Mesopotamians weren't growing corn, they were growing wheat. And so Donnelly had to ignore the fact that the Atlanteans, who are spreading agriculture all over the world, did it kind of idiosyncratically. How come they didn't give the Aztecs wheat and rice and And how come he didn't give the the ancient Chinese and the Egyptians corn and potatoes? If Donnelly had, I think, had rationally looked at the evidence, even the evidence available to him, he would have said, this is kind of wrong. And he would have. And although Donnelly, yes, knew very little about pyramids in Egypt and pyramids in Mesoamerica, if he looked at any of the the plates of what they looked like, okay, okay, Ignatius, they're bigger on the bottom than they are on the top. Try building something uh, different from that. Uh, but they really don't look alike. And he knew that the Egyptian pyramids were burial chambers. He knew the Mesoamerican ones weren't. And he knew that the flat-top pyramids, the mounds of the American Midwest, well, those don't look anything at all. They're truncated pyramids. They don't look anything at all like Egypt. And yet, when you look at his maps of the spread of Atlantean culture, yeah, in, in America, it's the, it's the, the Mississippi Valley and the Missouri River and the Ohio River. All of those are are colored in in his map as being oh yeah, it's the mound builders. They were from Atlantis. So yeah, you know, yes, we can forgive him for not having the details right, but even in the general things, he just got it. He you know he had this fixed idea in his head that. People couldn't figure out stuff on their own. So even things that are vaguely similar, they must have a common source.
3: I'm not going to say that he or any of his cohorts did not go into this with with confirmation bias. I'm, I'm not going to say that because almost all of them, when they publish, are criticized by the establishment. There was an establishment back then, and, and sure. they did get criticized by the establishment. So... You know, I mean, I'm not saying that uh, we should forgive them everything. I'm just saying it's a little bit more understanding as to why these kind of ideas would come up and spread so quickly. Because nowadays, if you were to come up with an idea like that, A, you would be shot down immediately, and B, it should be harder for that concept to travel, even though, uh, as we can see, and we will see later with... um, modern publishers like and like menzies like um hancock they're still very that concept still takes off and it's still very popular but it's i want to say it's popular for slightly different reasons it's still basically racism but it's a different kind of racism yeah so, i think but i think listen you're
0: you're you're wrong to forgive these guys i'm sorry that's fine, <laughs> but, that's fine. But, but but no here but here's the deal i think what we're what we're discussing though does bring up a really interesting question and which is why do people outside of beyond the writers of these of these works of fiction that they're claiming is history beyond us archaeologists who get all you know get up on our high horse and say no 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 that's wrong why do people so want to embrace the notion of the mother culture of one group of geniuses living in a privileged environment who make all the discoveries and all the inventions and they provide it to everybody around the world. Why is that? And I, I'm asking this question because I don't know the answer. Why do people want to embrace that? What's so appealing about the idea that, well, you know, most people are kind of dull and they need an inspiration from outside of their own culture For them to progress, why is that more appealing to people than the notion that you know where you know what everywhere people live, they have to rise to the occasion to survive, and they make discoveries on their own. They spread these out, and that's that's why we find ancient civilizations in Mesoamerica, in South America, in Southeast Asia, in Eastern Asia, in Southern Asia, in Northern Africa, in Central Africa, in Europe. Why is it everywhere? Why I mean, Why? Why What? Why is an explanation that, well, they all got, they all borrowed it from somewhere else. Why is that embraced by people? Um, and why do those folks want to reject the notion that, you know what, people are smart everywhere?
3: I think it's a mixed bag of reasons. I think the easiest, re- the, the easiest answer for that is, it's a cool thought, it's a cool story, and people like cool stories. Um, that's not the only reason, and it's way too simplistic. I think some of it also has to do with, people like to be special and if you're saying that there was this grandmother culture and this grandmother culture diffused their knowledge down to all of these poor cult these poor groups of people that weren't able to do it for themselves you're also saying that that mother culture survived somehow and if that mother culture survived then What's to say that mother culture isn't surviving now? And we see this with the DNA talk that we've (laughs) we've encountered a few times. Because now people are starting to say, oh, well, this, especially with the Aryan thing. Oh, the Aryans are the mother culture. And I have Aryan blood in me. Ergo, I am special because I am part of the mother culture. And Uh, Maybe, yeah, yeah. I think there's other reasons too, but... I mean, there's just like the plain old just conspiracy theorists who just can't believe anything real is real. But I think a lot of it has to do with they like this fun story and people yeah. really want to be special.
0: Yeah. I don't think I'm not sure I ever shared this little story um, years and years ago. My my older son is he's 30. Now, oh, he's going to be 30 in like a couple of weeks <laughs> anyway. But he was I, maybe we're looking at Josh. This is my old, Josh is six or seven years old and. That was a time, when, you know, we didn't have a computer at home. When I needed to go on to, to go online, we went to school, went to my university where there were computers and the internet. And um, I remember I was doing some research for a book, and Josh, super smart kid, I said, look up. Look up evolution, Josh. See what you can find. And this is, you know, this is these are the days when there weren't millions and millions of websites. There were like six or something. And so anyway, Josh used whatever the search engine was and looked up evolution. And his, this is a naive kid, right? My, my, my he's seven years old. or eight, maybe he's eight, whatever. And he goes online and he says, Dad, is any of this true? And I went over, and it was a website that essentially said, all of the great inventions ever made in the world, and from antiquity right to the present, were all produced by, wait for it, white people. And then it (laughs) went, but no, it went down. yeah. Again, Josh is, again, he's he's a little kid and he's a little white kid. So he's reading, this little white kid, Josh, is reading about how special white people are because they invented everything. And we're looking at Stonehenge, the pyramids, the Sphinx, that's a white guy, um, agriculture. Every great invention, because they started with antiquity and they worked their way up, you know, to, I don't know, you know, liquid shampoo, white people. <laughs> and the, the thing is, of Be course, fair. when I looked, in fact, the site was, the banner of the site was the National White People's Aryan Party Collective. And it was, in fact, a, it was a neo-Nazi site.
3: Oh, man. Uh, that's a you really just wait. We've example. got, we've got you just wait until we get to the far end of this list man Well yeah but
0: what but I'm saying that that even then right with my kid just look just looking on the internet that's that same thing that God damn it we are smarter than anybody else and archaeology proves that and we should you know regain our whatever the hell these crazy people are trying to regain but that was but that was I mean that's that's the same kind of thing that they were using archaeology. Misusing archaeology, misrepresenting, misunderstanding, and misrepresenting what the archaeological record actually says. So that every
3: archaeological site where you find cool stuff, that's white people. Well, no, and I think it's great that you that your son Josh was capable. I mean, that, that says something about the way he was raised and the, and the way you guys raised him, that he saw that and he questioned that. Oh yeah, yeah. Right I mean, off the no, bat. He didn't say, Oh, to, this is so, a
0: lie. He just said,
3: Is well, this is, he was perplexed he was surprised is that it true? didn't sound right to him and right, that's a exactly good thing. there are some people that read that though and they're like oh i always knew it you know and it's just yeah. confirming something that they already believed or you know instead of or maybe they're like your son and they're like hey dad is this real and the father comes over and says yep you know <laughs> oh, i mean scary huh well it it's- is i mean if you had told your seven-year-old son that you Yes that was true. Oh right. Do oh, you of think he questioned you? Question you? Uh, prob- no,
0: he definitely would. Well my, my Josh, oh, he would he questions every. He continues to question <laughs> everything I say. No, that's fine. But now for those listening to the podcast, understand that that you know I know Sarah a bit, she knows me. Neither one of us are the kinds of people who see you know, a racist under every bed, that everything is interpreted through that lens. But you know, when you've got people saying white people invented everything, there's yeah. there's no other word you can use to describe what that is. That's racism. That's the appropriate use for that word. Um, there, there are, you know, we can get in a, lots of arguments outside of the context of this podcast about people who get all bent out of shape. But you know, you, that's the first thing, you play the race. We are not playing the race card here. That card was played by these assholes who put together these websites who say it's white people from the very beginning of time.
3: And all we're doing is is diagnosing it. I don't think my race card gets me very far anymore, so. Yeah, there you go. There's no point in playing it. (laughs) But yeah, no, so we covered quite a bit. Um, But as I was predicting, this is definitely going to be a multi-parter and I hope people stick around with it because we barely made it to the 19th century and we got a lot more to go. Um, oh, yeah, so it, was a good,
0: it was a good start, Sarah Absolutely. I think it is a good
3: start And we'll pick these up as we have time to pick them up In between all of the interviews that we have scheduled For the next couple months coming up So Ken, thank you very much Absolutely, Sarah um, And let's let's do this again sometime right. Oh yes oh, Yeah,
2: yes. you bet Cool. <laughs> Talk to you
3: later, all man right. Yeah, bye-bye trials as
2: one will call No, we don't do dinosaur.
3: Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by ArcheoSoup Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com slash You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter, at ArchieFantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com slash ArchieFantasies. Thanks again for listening.
2: No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs!